So a lot of people always ask me, you know, where on earth do you find these people? How do you get in contact with people that have such interesting and amazing stories? And honestly, <laughs> the answer is, I don't really know. It sort of just happens. Like today's episode is the perfect example. So I got an email from a listener of the show and they wrote in, they basically said, look, love the show, think it's great. Uh, you should really interview my dad. And I was kind of like, okay, sure. Uh, tell me more about your dad. And he didn't really give me anything. He sort of just said, okay, wee bit of this, wee bit of that. But honestly, just meet him for coffee and see for yourself. So, you know, pretty open guy. Always on the lookout for interesting stories. And a few days ago, had coffee with today's guest. And man, am I so, so glad that we did Norman Surplus is a pioneer from Larne, Northern Ireland. He's also a video game designer, wind farmer, lifeboat captain, log cabin builder, cancer survivor, and most recently, the first man to circumnavigate the world in an auto gyro. Now, what the heck is an auto gyro? It's a sort of a, a quirky, unusual way to fly. It's a little aircraft. It looks like a, a small helicopter. Uh, it's open cockpit. They're only about five meters long. It's like flying a motorbike. That's the easiest way I've been able to explain to people so they get it in their heads, okay? Now, in 2010, Norman set out from his hometown on a journey that would take him all over the world and in a bizarre turn of events, nine years to complete. In today's episode, you learn about Norman's early career. And so it was very much a pioneering, make it up as you go along, invent your own job type industry. The event that changed the course of his life. That turned out to be a quite advanced stage of bile cancer. And how one man from Larne circumnavigated the world in the most unlikely way. It's a flying motorbike. It's like the, the most amazing road trip that you can go on. So that's it. Buckle up. It's time to hand the controls over to Norman and uh, let him take it from there. Hi. I'm uh, Norman Surplus, and you are listening to the best of Belfast. All right, guys, what's the crack? My name is Matthew Thompson, and welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that celebrates our wee country, Northern Ireland. Each episode gives you the opportunity to get to know and learn from some of the incredible people who call this place home through our unfiltered conversations. The show is brought to you from our recording studio in Ormo Bass, Barclay Eagle Labs, a co-working space right here in the heart of the city centre. Support for Best of Belfast comes from our Producers Club, where listeners just like you pledge as little as £1 a month in exchange for exclusive perks, invitations to live podcasts, some Northern Irish swag, and much, much more. Massive, massive thank you to all of you who are part of that, especially our Titanic producers, Town Square Cafe, Gavin Wall, Ali Hart, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, and of course, the Omobass team. We could not do this show without our producers, and thanks to your support, we can keep it running and allowed to stay ad-free. So, really appreciate you. To find out more about the great work these guys do, and support us on our journey to 100 interviews, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Okay, that's it for me. Time to jump straight into today's conversation with this week's local legend. So, Norman, talk to me about Formula One. Well, Formula One. Well, the Formula One that I knew was um, from the 1990s. I mean, I'd followed Formula One before that, uh, but 
uh, with a working relationship with it, uh, I got quite interested then. Funny enough, I didn't ever think about driving and, and drivers and, and whatever. Uh, my interest in Formula One was the uh, Formula One circuits, the actual scenery of all those tracks around the world. And that came about because of my job at the time. Uh, I was working with my brother-in-law, Jeff Crammond, uh, who uh, back in the day was a very uh, famous uh, games programmer uh, for uh, computer games. And, and in those days, in the 1990s, computer games were quite clunky, yeah. <laughs> especially 3D graphic games. Yeah. Uh, so they're quite blocky, quite clunky. There's not a lot of memory there to, to work with. Um, but all the way through the 90s, they were getting better and better. And so we produced four versions of a Formula One driving game, uh, culminating, culminating in, in Grand Prix 4 uh, in sort of the end of uh, 2000. My, well, my job was to model the tracks, basically uh, everything you see outside the car. Uh, and so that involved, mostly it involved watching endless hours of video of in-car footage, mm -hmm. uh, trying to glean what does each building look like. And then we got a lot of maps and, and things. You didn't have the luxury of Google Earth. <laughs> back in the day. You couldn't just satellite it. <laughs> no, and it was, it was very much more analog uh, in our uh, data gathering. But uh, it's surprising how much you could find. Um, also, you had to be a bit of a horticulturist and, and plant trees and uh, <laughs> landscape and put in all the, the hills and the banks and things. Uh, just so that the driving experience was as close as possible to being like real driving. So this is like a Formula One simulation, the same way there's like train yeah. simulation or farm yep. simulation. There was a Formula One, yeah. Yeah. Well, the idea was you were sitting in the cockpit and wow. you're driving around my my circuits basically. Um, and uh, so yeah, so I got a, built up a really keen mental picture of what these circuits were like. Uh, but by the time we got to the end of the of the decade, basically, um, well, the detail that we could fit in to each circuit was getting quite uh, remarkable, such that you needed photo quality mm. data uh, by then. Um, and the only way you could get that photo quality was to for some unfortunate fool <laughs> to uh, to go around and visit every Grand Prix circuit on the in the world that was on the calendar. Uh, and so in 2001, uh, I was that person. <laughs> and so I visited every Grand Prix wow. that year. Uh, we had a license with uh, the Formula One management. Uh, uh, and that allowed us to have two passes for each race. Uh, and they were literally go anywhere passes. We could go through the pit lane, through, uh, you know, backstage as it were, uh, or up in the tops of grandstands and crane towers and all sorts of places that people just don't normally go mm. and the idea was i was going there to collect these photographs now we took uh, uh, 35,000 digital photographs now that was in the days when professional digital photography was quite in its infancy uh, but my pictures were the most boring pictures you'd ever <laughs> see uh, 35 35,000 uh, pictures of the size of toilet blocks <laughs> yeah. and the backs of grandstands and, 
and, and uh, advertising hoardings and everything that is outside that makes the scenery mm. for these things. And that then became the wallpaper that we then stuck on with the help of a lot of artists by then. Uh, initially, it was only me doing all this. And by the end, we had a team of maybe 20. Wow. It was a little bit like making a movie yeah, you know, yeah, by the yeah. end of the, the decade. Um, so we had a lot more people then to help uh, sort of dress the set, if you like. Um, but it was a fantastic privilege to go around and see uh, all these Grand Prix circuits in reality. Crazy. Yeah. And so, if I have this right, while you were effectively being a video game designer, I mean, I'm sure you had a, a different title, but that's the way I'm <laughs> I'm processing it yeah, anyway. Yeah. You also were part of bringing wind energy to Northern Ireland for the first time. Is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, the The computer games were were with my brother in law. And the, the wind energy was with my brother. There you go. You've got uh, a good family. <laughs> I know. I know. Such a diverse uh, sort of... Uh, Something in the water location. up in Larne, is there? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, well, my brother had been working uh, for Lloyds of London offshore, actually, off on the, on the oil rigs in the, in the 80s. And he'd had a lot of time there reading and uh, had really predicted a lot of what has come to pass with uh, renewable energies wow. uh, and the rise of, of wind energy especially um, and Northern Ireland is a very windy place <laughs> as we all know um, and so we're on a we're in a perfect place for for wind energy but of course back in the uh, the early 90s again uh, it, it just wasn't really known about. Uh, we knew we had a windy place, but uh, there were no wind turbines per se or no wind farms. Um, they they did have them in the continent, uh, you know, in Holland and Denmark and Germany and places. And so there was a good model to follow there. Uh, and so it was just a case of applying that. Mm. Now, the catalyst came when Northern Ireland Electricity was privatized. And within that privatization uh, came a... Uh, an obligation uh, on the generators to provide a very small amount of renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And that, that was an obligation. They had to buy it. Uh, and that was a, they, they held a competition uh, for wind farm developers, such a new breed of, <laughs> of people. It just had to be invented um, to come out with some proposals. Uh, and so myself, my brother, and three other guys uh, we formed a company called B9 Energy, uh, specifically for developing uh, new wind projects uh, in Northern Ireland. And uh, we were very lucky. Uh, we put in three proposals to this scheme and uh, we in, in a bidding process, and all three were picked nice. to get built. Uh, so that sort of set us off, if you like. Um, and over the years, uh, we further developed we developed i think eight eight wind farms in, in all in the end uh progressively getting progressively bigger as time went on um the turbines got bigger like computers they <laughs> they sort of advanced very rapidly but at the same time we also then had the problem of once we got these first sites built well um we needed somebody to look after them. Mm. And it was back in the day when you couldn't have gone into a job center and said, uh, <laughs> could I have six wind farm engineers, please? <laughs> it just wasn't that person out yeah. there. Uh, and so it was very much a pioneering, make it up as you go along, 
invent your own job type mm-hmm. industry. Um, and it was fascinating. It was really, it, it was, it was a great time to be in that whole, uh, movement. You have a really nice mix of like, you're evidently like you, we were talking before about this log cabin that you've built. And I just, I mean, I would love to spend the next two hours just talking about that because <laughs> like selfishly, like that's something I would really love to do at some point. And I'd love to just uh, kind of do like a step-by-step guide of how to do that. Maybe, maybe we'll do it another time. Uh, maybe so. Um, but you have this nice mix of quite i mean this this is an understatement but you're definitely a very intelligent man you definitely are good at strategy and planning and we'll talk about that later yes where do you think you got the cocktail from um well uh our father uh was a marine engineer (laughs) that'll do it (laughs) yeah my brother followed in his footsteps and became a marine engineer as well but um, so there was that engineering bent a little bit um, that I suppose it was always a case of early on you would have an old radio or something and you'd take it apart and see how it worked and you might not put it together again but you <laughs> or a washing machine or whatever it would be you just yeah. you know once it had finished what it was supposed to be doing you could sort of take it apart and scavenge parts out of it and mm-hmm. all the rest of it so there was always a curiosity a mechanical curiosity i suppose in that way um and, and finding uses for things that aren't for that purpose you know mm-hmm. you're sort of reusing in a different way yeah um and i always find pleasure in in that uh, finding those other uses for things. The downside of that is that you never threw anything away. <laughs> Everything's useful, isn't it, Norman? It is. It is. So, you know, you could sit there with an oh. old washing machine drum, you know, it's made out of stainless steel. It, 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 it's fantastic. Uh, you know, if you looked at it as an object, yep. you know, once you've stripped it away from the from the housing, it's a fantastic object. And you think, gosh, what a work of art. And you think, well, that'll become useful in for something. I'll smelt that down and use it for something later, surely. Yeah, you know, so that, that is one of the, the drawbacks. You end up with a lot of potential material for mm. stuff, you know. Cool. So I'm going to really fast forward here because uh, I think we have to because there's so much to talk about. But in my head, anyway, you have this really interesting, diverse career under your belt. You have a lot of skill, a lot of ability. You seem to have great people around you. I assume that this wind business is, is do you know, you guys are doing very well from it. Mm. And then you're on a lifeboat one day. Yes. And yes. what happens? Well, uh, I'm the second coxswain of the Lauren lifeboat, um, on a Trent class all weather lifeboat. Um, and this particular day we're out training and I'm the coxswain uh, in charge of the boat. What is a coxswain? Sorry. I've, uh, I've... Is that just like the captain okay, got of you. the boat, uh, in charge of, of the whole thing. Um, and so we're out So you're training. also a sailor. Fair play. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Just threw that in. Yeah, <laughs> casual. Um, and so we're out training and we happen to be in Larne Lock just by the harbour there. Uh, and I get a very sore uh, pain in the, in the stomach. Um, just came on very suddenly, uh, and I sort of wrestled with it for a while, while the exercise is going on, but of course you're in charge of the exercise. Um, and I soon sort of realized this isn't normal. I'm not going to be able to function like this. So 
luckily we had a, a, a another coxswain on board, a relief coxswain, uh, who Keith, who I was able to sort of hand over to. And I said, look, Keith, you have to let me off. You, you know, I'll go back home. Um, and they carried on with the, the training. But so I went home and, well, long story short, I was uh, off in the, in the ambulance and whatever uh, up to the hospital. Uh, and that, a, like a bolt out of the blue, that turned out to be a quite advanced stage of bile cancer. Mm. Now, I was only 40 years old at the time. And that condition is normally when you're a little bit older, maybe 50 to 60 years old. Um, and so I was unusually young, really, for that. Uh, so anyway, I had uh, quite a, a, a hasty surgery, quite emergency surgery, um, and then, but also then I was needing chemotherapy uh, to go with that. Now the prognosis was not good; uh, it was quite bad, really. It was only uh, a forty percent chance to live eighteen months, mm. and there I am, uh, young family, kids sort of under five, mm -hmm. two kids, and uh, facing this prognosis. Uh, it was quite a dark sort of place to be at the time. Um, but uh, because I was uh, unusually young, then the oncologist uh, was saying, well, we should be able to hit it pretty hard. Mm. Uh, your body is good to, to keep it, uh, you know, to, to take it. Um, and so that's what happened then for the next six months or so uh, through 2004. Um, now, it was quite a, I, I often refer to it as being a bit of an adventure. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that flippantly. It, it is, it's a sort of mental adventure that, and it's the coping strategy that I adopted mm -hmm. uh, to say, right, well, you're, you're going to go places in your mind and in your body physically that you normal people just don't go to mm -hmm. in their daily lives, uh, which is true. And, and it was fascinating in that way, if you could engage with it. Uh, amazing to see, uh, you know, the, when you were having the chemotherapy and things. Uh, although a, a little bit frightening as well in that the, the, the nurse coming to administer the, the chemo came at you dressed like Darth Vader. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with the mask and the gloves and all the rest Yeah, you're like, this is this is not good. What's good about to go in my body right I now? Know, I know, yeah. I know. So, uh, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a quite a, a challenging time. Uh, with an uncertain future, an uncertain outcome. Uh, but uh, pleased to report that, you know, as, as time went on, uh, things improved uh, and I got sort of stronger and stronger and that was great. And uh, and so that, it, it sort of kick-started, unbeknownst to me at the time, it kick-started a new direction or new path mm. uh, way in, in life a little bit. And they often do say that cancer does that a little bit. You, you sort of reflect on life uh, in, a, in a different way. Um, I mean, I used to think, interestingly, I used to think while I was going through that, I thought, if I do get through this, uh, I'll be the happiest guy alive <laughs> forever. Yeah. You know? And uh, and you would think, well, yes, you would think that. And But... Very quickly after, uh, you know, a few years down the line, normal life comes back, <laughs> you know, creeps in at the edges. The menacing and, normality. Yeah, and it's like, oh, I haven't forgotten to pay that bill or mm. oh, I have to cut the grass, it's getting long or all the normal little things creep back in mm. and 
before very long, you're, you're back to normal, back to the same as everybody else. Mm -hmm. The only thing that is different is that if you think really hard back, then you can at least know that you were in that position and that you have gone beyond and, and come mm -hmm. out somewhere else. Um, so, yes, yeah, so while I was in the, uh, the hospital right back at that time, um, I did have um, an event which seemed to change the course of where I went afterwards. And that was where I was uh, recovering from the surgery. I was in the Royal Hospital there in Belfast. And uh, I was watching a daytime TV program, um, as you do. And uh, this particular program was about um, restoring an old autogyro or a gyroplane. Um, or a gyrocopter. It's got three words. It means it's the exact same. It's a little aircraft. It looks like a, a small helicopter. Now, people wondering what that is uh, might remember uh, with James Bond. Uh, <laughs> in the, the movie You Only Live Twice, James Bond had uh, a little flying machine called Little Nelly, um, which very famously arrived in four suitcases and was assembled in the film. Uh, in, in Japan. It's great. It's like an Ikea yeah, aircraft. A flat pack, <laughs> a flat pack aircraft. Um, so um, so on this this restoration program, this, this old gyro, a little single-seat one, had been sitting in the back of somebody's shed, you know, with a, a chicken roosting on it and all the rest. <laughs> and they spent half an hour restoring it, and then they got it to fly at the end of the, uh, the program. And that just sort of reminded me that that sort of aircraft existed. You know, it was a. Had quirky, you ever heard of it before? Uh, yes. Well, I'd I'd, I'd seen the film, the, the movie. I knew about them, but I'd sort of forgotten really much about them. Um, but it, I sort of thought at the time it, it's a sort of a, a quirky, unusual way to fly, um, and I quite like that. I quite like looking at things in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. um, a conventional aircraft, a conventional um, way of doing things doesn't have that much appeal. I like to have the a, a bit of difference there. Um, so anyway, I remember thinking, well, if I get through this whole cancer episode, that might be something I might have a, a go at flying <laughs> one of those things. If sure. I can, I'll do a bit of research and see where you can learn yeah. to fly one yeah. and things like that. Um, and so that's what then happened. Uh you know, a couple of years later, uh, I had found out that there was a, there was only, at that time, there was only one school in the whole of the UK in Cumbria. Wow. A place called Kirkbride Airfield. Uh, and a guy, Chris Jones there, my instructor, uh, took me on and I learned how to fly. Uh, I'd never flown before. Wow. Uh, had not that much interest uh, in flying. I'd done a lot of uh mountaineering and caving and canoeing and sailing and lots of outdoor pursuit type things and the lifeboat and things but never yeah, you had enough under your belt you didn't need to prove prove yeah. for yourself you could fly as well yeah, but, but none of it had been in the air <laughs> yeah. you see um and so it it was a, a, especially with the cancer uh sort of so fresh as it were it was a, a good release to go and do something completely different mm. um and I, I enjoyed it. Now, at that time, I just uh, thought, well, I'll, I'll take this up as a bit of a hobby. Um, but crucially, at the same time I was learning to fly, 
uh, I became aware then of all things Orojaro <laughs> yeah. uh, in the world. It's like going on a keto diet. All of a sudden, you get exposed to the world yeah. of ketoers and yeah. all these things you didn't know just starts pouring into your life. Exactly. <laughs> and you see it everywhere. Yeah. You see? Uh, well, at that time, uh, there was a chap called Barry Jones. I know him very well now. Uh, and he is a helicopter pilot for the Army, uh, the British Army. And so... He had set about trying to fly one of these very small uh, aircraft, the Jaro, uh, around the world. It had never been attempted before. Uh, now, that was remarkable because if you imagine the Auto Jaro uh, has been flying since 1923. <laughs> that's when the first one flew. And that's only 20 years after the Wright brothers wow. took, first took flight. And so in all that time, in, in sort of 96 years uh, ago, n none of them had ever flown around the world. Wow. Um, and you stop, and I sort of thought about that. Uh, well, you know, everything else that flies, an example of it, has flown around the world. Even the hot air balloon has <laughs> flown around the world. And yet here's one type of flying machine that has just been forgotten about. Yeah. And of course, that was because uh, they had a, a heyday in the 1930s. Uh, Amelia Earhart, very famous uh, aviator, she set a world record flying one to 18,000 feet. Whoa. Uh, they were landing and taking off of skyscraper buildings in, in, uh, in the States. The first aircraft to land on the White House lawn <laughs> in America was an auto jar <laughs> and take off oh, again. Man. And so they were doing great things. But then uh, from the auto gyro, then the, the helicopter was, was sort of emerged and the poor old uh, Jaro then became the poor cousin and, and was forgotten about, mm -hmm. really, in history. And that's pretty much why uh, it hadn't evolved uh, as much as it, it could have done. Uh, so anyway, Barry was, uh, was having a go at, at flying around the world. Um, now, he got from the UK uh, as far as India. Uh, now, this aircraft, they're only about five meters long. It's like flying a motorbike. <laughs> uh, it's open cockpit. And it has two, two, uh, two seats, one behind the other. Uh, but the, the rear seat uh, in the configuration that you use to fly around the world uh, is full of fuel. Mm -hmm. You have a, an extra fuel bag or fuel tank there. Uh, and that uh, helps you to cross longer distances of water and things. Um, and so anyway, Barry got as far as, as, as India, but he unfortunately was stopped by the monsoon. Again, thought no more about it and uh, carried on. So a few years later, uh, we'd, I'd flown to France a few times and, and around starting to spread your wings a little bit, <laughs> literally. Um, and the idea, it wouldn't go away, really, this idea formed that, uh, well, I would like to put something back towards uh, uh, raising awareness and, and funds for bile cancer um, because it had been such a sudden thing with me. Um, that I thought, well, what could I be doing uh, that, you know, might raise the awareness of all that? Um, and it, I just kept returning back to this idea, you know, well, it's still there, mm. but, you know, fly around the world. You can, and all it is, you break it down into a, just a series of day trips. You know, you just get in, you fly for maybe four or five hours, you land somewhere else, you stay overnight, you get in and do it again the next day. <laughs> and if you do that enough times and you keep going in the one direction, <laughs> soon enough, 
you end up, or eventually I you mean, end up going, coming back the same place sure, you started. Sure, that's one way to look at it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you have to mentally have to do it that way. You have to break it down into small little chunks. Are you, you familiar with the 10-mile march theory? Mm, you remind me of that. I'll speed through it. It was uh, an Arctic expedition, two teams. I believe it was England, maybe Sweden, don't quote me. Maybe it's a Scandi country. Mm. And they had two different strategies. Mm-hmm. And there was basically a race. They wanted to see who could get there, back, there and back first. <laughs> and one team, they decided to adopt a... 10-mile march strategy where every single day they would march 10 miles regardless of weather, regardless of anything. And the other team, they decided to, whenever the weather was good, they would walk as far as they could and then camp. Whenever the weather was bad, they would kind of bunker down and rest up and go. And the team that did that, they actually ended up dying. They didn't make it. Oh, gosh. Uh, And the team that focused on the 10 miles. Yes. They not only did they survive, but they beat every record known to man. It was so, so, so fast. Just yeah. that consistent yes. daily sort of 10 miles that they focused on. Get a routine going. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And 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 yes, it had to be done that way. Uh, you know, the, the planning, there's a great saying that if you plan early, you plan twice. <laughs> uh, for, for flight planning. And and it's basically because if you if you, you know, plan your whole route out to the last minute and then you wake up the first day and it's thunderstorms and you're not going anywhere you know <laughs> and you're delayed leaving well then the whole thing goes out of kilter mm. uh, so you do there's a certain amount of making it up as you go along which of course is has been my my style of, of doing things really a, a lot of the time um, then and I'm quite comfortable in that n- slightly uncertain environment uh, I suppose, uh, you know, I, I have that a lot. And so that, uh, I, I started to look at it as this idea, well, do you think I could do this? Do you think I could fly around? Um, and certainly the route was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the only, the only fly in the ointment was uh, the, the, the biggest uncertainty about flying around the world was, uh, was Russia. Mm. Now, the route I was taking was to go down, uh, well, right round uh, Europe, and the Middle East, across India, down through Southeast Asia, through the Philippines, and up through Japan, uh, and then up through the far east of Russia to get to the Bering Sea, mm-hmm. to get across to Alaska, and then across America, and then across the Atlantic to finish. Now, in all that, the uh, as I say, the the most uncertain part was the, was the Russian part. Uh, would they allow such a small aircraft to fly across the far east of Russia, which is very remote? Yeah, you know, Russia's huge; it's a seven time zones and uh, just amazing, vast country. Um, and uh, at the end of two thousand and nine, I just sent a casual email off to the British Embassy in Moscow, as you do, saying, I'm, I'm thinking about this route, and uh, what do you think? Do you think the Russians would might allow it? Just a sort of a, an inquiry, you know? And I heard nothing back for about six weeks. And then I got a phone call on the phone, and, and the number that came up was very short. Okay. And it was one of these sort of diplomatic numbers, you know. And I says, hello. And he says, um, ah, the... British Embassy here in Moscow. <laughs> uh, that that uh, that request you s- you sent sent in um, 
the uh, you know, I, I says, "Well, hang on, it, it was only an inquiry." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, well, they'd taken my inquiry, turned it into a request. Oh my and, goodness! And sent it in, Russians, just to, to to ask, see what they would say. And uh, and he says, uh, "Well, and they're coming back, and they haven't said no." Huh? And he says, "Well, that's most unusual because." You know, normally these things just get a flat no, and that's that. Uh, but he said because of that, then they, they would proceed a bit further with it. Wow. And so at the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, uh, we'd progressed the discussions that, yes, it was going to seem to be possible to do. And with the, on the strength of that, then I was able to set off um, uh, with this quest of flying around the world. <laughs> so set off with high hopes and uh, set off in March 2010. Um, did quite well, got down through uh, Europe quite quickly across the Mediterranean to Egypt. Um, things started to get a bit more real once you got out of Europe. <laughs> uh, you were much more, you, you really thought, right, I might my own now, you know. <laughs> I'm flying along unsupported. I haven't got a ground crew or yeah. a big group of people and like you said it really is it's like a motorbike it is that's a great way to describe it it is and as i was in egypt i then uh, made a, a great connection uh with a, a chap called eddie gould um and online he uh we we sort of met uh or got connected over facebook uh he'd seen that uh the flight was coming his way uh, and he's uh, he's from the UK, and he's, he actually lives now back in the UK, but at that time he was living in Cairo. Um, and uh, he really saw the difficulty I was getting in, in Egypt. Egypt was very difficult for small, light aircraft to, to function. Uh, and so he helped me just, uh, you know, as a as an aviation enthusiast, really. He came along to, to help. And, and this sort of showed him that, uh, well, actually, these sorts of pilots have a difficulty uh, in these places. And he formed a whole business out of it uh, <laughs> called General Aviation Services Egypt. Amazing. Which is still going today. And uh, he now helps maybe half a dozen flights a year that go around the world. Wow. And he's the go-to guy uh, for all these things. Uh, and it all started just when I happened to fly past him uh, in Egypt. Um, so he then came on board and, and helped with, the, with our social media side of things. And part of the, that was quite important because I was flying solo um, and mentally, when, especially when you're flying out over the oceans and things, it's a very lonely place to be. Mm. Um, well, on the aircraft, I'd carry a, a satellite tracker and that would provide a position on a sort of Google Earth type map uh, on, on a web page. And so... Anybody around the world could just uh, click onto this page and see and watch live. Wow. Uh, updated every 10 minutes. It's, it's two minutes these days, but it was 10 minutes in those days. Um, your exact position anywhere in the world. And that, that uh, gave a certain amount of psychological support that when you're out flying, uh, it was a bit like having a thousand people sitting in the back seat. Sure, yeah. You just thought, you know... I'm out here on my own, but that little tracker is telling maybe a thousand followers yeah, yeah, yeah. that uh, you know everything's okay. Yeah. One uh, of the one of the questions on my idiot sheet here feels mm -hmm. like a good time to to ask it. You're talking about flying over the ocean and what a lonely place it is. Yes. What did you think about? Um, did you think at all? Did 
you know, when you're flying over an ocean that just looks the same for yes. hours and hours, yes. do you just disappear or do you actively think about things? Well, uh, there's no autopilot for a start on the aircraft, so you have to fly it the whole time, hands-on. Uh, so you can't sort of drop off to sleep. Mm. Uh, but you can get into a state of, I suppose it's almost like meditation, where you, you sort of you, you focus things down uh, just to the bare minimum of monitoring everything. You're doing what you need to do, uh, but it gets very quiet, of course, because you're outside uh, radio range mm. for your VHF radio. Uh, and so you really have all, all you've got is your own thoughts going on and the, and the engine, uh, which people always say it sounds a bit different over the water. Uh, you know, it starts to hiccup or something. And you think, oh, oh, oh. But I must say my engine worked brilliantly the whole way. But, um, but no, you, you sort of, uh, yes, I suppose it helped that a bit like daydreaming or something that you can, it passes the time a lot faster. Uh, so really that was all there was. Sometimes you had no time to do that because it was maybe heavy weather, mm. uh, a lot of cloud, a lot of layers of cloud. Because some of these flights were maybe 400, 450 nautical miles long. Mm. And in that distance, you can get through a weather system. And so what you start off with and what you end up with can be quite different things. Uh, so that's a, you know, always a concern as well. You're, you're sort of wondering what's coming up. Yeah, and you're pretty exposed exposed per se you know mm -hmm. did you have the opportunity to like de-layer or did you just have to wear your full suit the whole time i ended up wearing the uh, mayor suit uh it's a company in finland that made this special red suit uh, for me um i wore it in all conditions mm. over the desert over the sea it was an immersion suit so it's actually for for sea survival yeah uh, and that was always the biggest thing uh, it's a single engine aircraft uh, and so the whole project had to be built from the worst case scenario. Mm. And that worst case is ditching in the Atlantic. Yeah, sure. Uh, and so I had to make sure that once I had that squared away, I mean, I was, you know, had a lot of training in the lifeboats uh, for sea survival, obviously. And uh, I had an emergency suit, a life jacket, a personal locator beacon, mm. uh, a life raft, um, satellite phone. So you you're once you're you had your mind uh happy that if the, if the worst came to the worst well i'm in a life raft i'm looking at my watch and see how long it takes for the helicopter to arrive yeah and once you had that sort of <laughs> you know you broke it right down to that <laughs> i'm okay mate yeah you know yeah then all the rest of the flying was 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 okay cool yeah you could sort of cope with that in that it, it, it's just a series of coping strategies mm. the whole flight sure um, is there anything that you wish that you had have packed? You know what I mean? Like you're over the Atlantic and yes. you're, you know, three months in or whatever it is. And you're yes. just sitting, flip's sake, I really <laughs> wish I had have brought. Mm, good question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had to pack all sorts of things because, you know, as I say, sometimes you're over the de Saudi desert and other times you're up in northern Canada in, in, uh, with icebergs or over in Greenland. Um, I don't know. I, I think I, I packed too much to Did start you? with. I flew for about two or three weeks, and then I had to send a whole big box of stuff home because <laughs> it just wasn't going to be necessary. Mm. 
And so you're really just packing quite light. Um, I suppose it was always going to be heating, uh, how to keep warm in the cold climates. Um, but now, by and large, it, it, it was uh, it was okay. I, I can't think of anything. I think we got it pretty much about right nice. for, for equipment to take. Um, you're, you're always constrained by the physical size of of the thing. You know, I mean, it was it was very very small. Like, you know, how many, how much luggage can you carry on a motorbike? Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I the, so the so the journey continued. I flew down through uh, Egypt, across Saudi desert. Uh, I had to land on a desert road. Wow. Uh, because of a thunderstorm uh, and spent a night in a petrol station <laughs> along with a camel <laughs> which is quite bizarre and made more bizarre because uh, Saudi Arabia wouldn't give me a visa oh, at the time to get, to get into the country uh, only there's a trick there where you, you sort of fly across the country uh, but you just when you land you just stay airside Got you, you don't go through immigration Cool. and so you could actually hop across the whole country doing that uh, it's a sort of trick some uh, small aviation planes can do um, I then carried on through um, the uh, across India uh, down through Bangladesh Myanmar Thailand now I got to Thailand in about 10 weeks wow uh, from setting off in Larne I took it's off. It's good going, like yeah. <laughs> I, I took off from Sandy Bay playing fields in at Larne Harbour, right next to my house, uh, and the reason for that was that uh, Larne hasn't, uh, you know, hasn't got the best of press in in, in Northern Ireland. I don't know right? what you're talking about. <laughs> no, no, well, um, and we certainly don't have an airfield or anything like it uh, in and around. Uh, but I was quite it was quite important to me to to set off and, and return to to Larne, Northern Ireland, uh, put it on the map a little bit. Um, but anyway, now I was in Thailand, and uh, then disaster struck uh, in so much as I managed to ditch the aircraft in a shallow lake oh, in, man. in Thailand on takeoff. Uh, There's lots of reasons for it. As these things always conspire together. Uh, but anyway, it meant that I was delayed now in Thailand. The aircraft was quite badly damaged. Uh, it took three months to repair it. Oof. Uh, that was an adventure in itself to get the whole repair done in Thailand. <laughs> uh, which is, you could have a, a separate book for that. Yeah, I bet. That part a separate podcast. Yeah. The three months in Thailand. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And there's um, a title, three months in Thailand. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but the thing was that I, I'd sort of crash landed in first of May and I got going again the first of August. Mm. Now I lost three months of summer there and that was to have knock on effects. Because you were planning on taking off on St. Paddy's Day and coming home on the 12th, isn't that what it That's was? That's right. That's right. <laughs> very diplomatic of you. <laughs> the original plan, very cross community. Exactly. <laughs> um, so now it was now first of August and I'm still in Thailand. So um, I've. I flew as quick as I could down through Malaysia. I got to one degree north of the equator, just north of Singapore, and then turned up across Borneo uh, and the Philippines, uh, heading up for Japan. But by now it was sort of mid-August, and I'm looking at the Bering Sea up in the north of Russia, and I'm thinking, I've got too many miles to do. I'll not make 
the Bering Sea before it shuts. Mm. And that's really a, a climate window there uh, in the, the Bering Sea. You could only fly it in the summer, especially in an open cockpit. Uh, and so rather than flying away up into Russia and getting stuck, uh, it was better to stay down in the warmer tropics, basically. So I, I, I left the aircraft in the, in the Philippines uh, over the winter to 2011. Mm. Uh, I then carried on quickly to get up through to Japan in 2011 uh, to be ready to go into Russia, uh, only to be met by the the the, uh, the words coming back that, uh, oh, sorry, this is Russia saying, uh, sorry, it's all new people here now, you'll have to reapply. Oh, man. And such started, uh, I did reapply and I reapplied and reapplied and the Russians uh wouldn't allow the, mm. the permission. Um, a certain section of the Russians wouldn't allow the permission, <laughs> he says diplomatically. <laughs> um, and so the security services, for whatever re- reason, had an issue. Now, crazy as it is, because having flown across Russia this year, uh, in the final part of the flight, there was nothing to look at. Yeah. <laughs> it was all trees. Trees. <laughs> it was just trees. And so... I don't know, then you were from Larne. Uh, maybe, maybe so. Maybe that got them worried. But, um, but it, it meant that I was stuck. The aircraft was physically stuck in Japan for three and a half years. Oh, my goodness. While I kept trying to get the permission. Um, now, eventually, uh, in 2014... Uh, well, the thing that the catalyst that sort of broke the, the cycle, as it were, was uh, when Russia uh, annexed Crimea in U- Ukraine. Uh, and the diplomacy between Europe and Russia just sort of fell through the floor at that mm-hmm. point. And I thought, well, I'm not, I haven't been getting th- any, getting through so far, and I'm definitely not going to get through now. Yeah. And so that was the catalyst to say, Rick, I'll just have to ship it between mm-hmm. Japan and America. Yeah. It was the only way to get across the Pacific. Yeah. And so that's what had to happen. So I shipped it across, in a, put it in a container and shipped it over um, and took it to a place called McMinnville uh, <laughs> in Oregon. And they have a, mu- a fantastic museum there. Uh, it's the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum. Uh, and it's the home of the Spruce Goose, which oh. is Howard Hughes' enormous wooden flying boat. Only flew once. Um, but anyway, it's, it's housed in this museum. And they were very good. They, they sort of adopted my aircraft as wow. a sort of uh, wayward explorer en route. And uh, they put it on display over the winter of 2014 to 15. Uh, and I set off again from McMinnville uh, in uh, June 2015. Uh, heading for home. So I flew coast to coast, Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, across the States, uh, then up into northern Canada, and then across the, the world's largest stepping stones uh, across <laughs> the right. Atlantic, uh, which was Greenland, Iceland, the Faroe Islands, and down into Scotland, and then back home to, to Larn. Yes. Uh, Just a wee bit late. A wee bit late. <laughs> Definitely late for your dinner. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I arrived back then on the 11th of August, uh, 2015. I I thought I'd finished. I'd, I'd got round uh, all of the world apart from Russia. And, and that, that was a, a pity that I hadn't managed to do that. But it, 
it wasn't my fault, really. It was out of my control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there we go. That was how it was up to 2015. Um, you then have to fast forward to uh, this year, 2019. Um, in the interim, a guy came to see me called James Ketchell. He was a sort of a serial adventurer, if you like. Um, and he was keen to have a go at the flight. Uh, and so I sort of let him know sort of how I had done it and, and a few tips and, and, and uh, assistance on the way. And he went away and he got his money together to get his aircraft and got sponsorship and uh, learned how to fly and everything else. And so at the beginning of 2019, he was ready to go. Mm-hmm. And initially, he was going to do the same route uh, round to Japan. Um, but just before he was about to set off, he got word back that Pakistan, which is one of the countries I had flown through, um, was now shut mm. to all GA traffic. Uh, he couldn't get that way. And this was a showstopper. Uh, without, he, he physically, couldn't get round Pakistan. Um, but... The good news was that Russia very finally (laughs) had come in from the cold and this year, for the first time, uh, had was now looking a bit more positive again. Wow. Um, Not just for the far east of Russia, but it now looked like it was possible to fly through the entire width of Russia. Wow. All seven time zones. Yes. Five and a half thousand miles. Crazy. And so you would set in at... uh, Go in at, in Estonia, in the east of Europe, and fly all the way to the Bering Sea to mm. get out to Alaska. Uh, now, when he got that news, he sort of got, got me on the phone and uh, we had a conversation about that. Um, and that's quite, he was quite a low hours pilot at that time, of course. Uh, and that's quite a, an undertaking for mm. anybody to take on Russia in that way. Uh, and so he asked if I would like to, to go with him. Wow. Uh, now, I could see, well, that would allow me to get back to McMinnville uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and finally close the loop yeah. of, of the circumnavigation. Uh, and that was really what my, my goal was then from that point. Uh, and so it worked in really well. We were a good team together. We flew together in two gyros. Nice. Uh, together in, in loose formation. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. What a sight to see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Across all that wasteland of of, uh, of Siberia and everywhere else. Wow. It took 17 flying days to get across Russia. Uh, you probably landed a company because, like you said, it's probably very samey, a lot of us. Yes. It. Yes. And we could chat on the radio. Uh, oh, man. Between, between what a gift. Other. Uh, and to that, because all the flying I'd done before that had been solo yeah. and quite solitary, really, uh, especially in places where no other aircraft venture anyway. Uh, so this was great. Yeah, it was a, it was a really nice way to, to go along and, and chat and whatever as we flew along. Uh, we saw lots of bears and whales <laughs> and wow. uh, caribou and things in, in, in Alaska. So it was it was a lovely experience to, to do that. Uh um, we did then eventually this year, 28th of June this year, I managed to fly back down the, from Canada, Alaska, Canada, and down into America and back to McMinnville. Uh, and it was a bit like uh, the return of the prodigal son <laughs> for the museum staff. They, of course, didn't expect me to come back. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd left in 2015 That's right. on my way home. And now he turns up again Amazing. like a bad penny. Uh, <laughs> 
four years later, having <laughs> flown around the world. A class, like. Uh, so they were very pleased to see me. Uh, but never had I, would have I had imagined that the the circumnavigation would have started and finished in, in Oregon of all places. Sure, yeah. You know, that was quite bizarre. But it is such a thing, such the nature of, of a pioneering flight. It's very uncertain mm. that it's actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of cul-de-sacs or a lot of wrong moves or... And of course, it's it's much easier after it's been done once. Um, James had a, a much easier uh, sort of flight because of it. You know, okay. sure, you 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 were the guinea pig. Yes, in a way, and uh, we we sort of it, it was a bit like a a baton in a relay race where you know we I sort of handed the once I'd got to uh, McMinnville, I handed the baton over to, to James to carry on. Mm. And he had then still to fly back to the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, his goal was to set the first uh, speed record mm. for a gyro ever. Um, and in order to do that, there's a minimum mileage that has to be done. Now, on the southern route around by Japan, that is, is long enough. There's a long flight that way. But across Russia, it's, it's too short. It's a bit like flying around the very top of the world. Yeah. Uh, and so for the speed record, you need to put a bit of extended mileage in. And so we had a great um, <laughs> challenge of flying into all of the 48 states, wow. the lower states in, in America, where the flying is a lot easier, of course. It, it's it's very simple, um, yeah. you know, compared to other countries in the world. Yeah. Uh, but he was able to then do this massive zigzag mm. and then go mm-hmm. across the Atlantic. But you had done, you know, you'd done the Grand Canyon, you'd done Niagara Falls, you know, you, you, had, you had a good time along the way as well. <laughs> I did, I did, yes. <laughs> Again, it's a flying motorbike. It's like the the, the most uh, amazing road trip that mm. you can go on. Uh, and to see those sights from, from the air, we, we both flew down together after McMinnville, we flew down the right down to San Diego, right down the Californian coast. And so we did the Golden Gate Bridge and we flew around Alcatraz and over the Hollywood sign. (laughs) And uh, so we had a great uh, sort of sightseeing trip, if you like, all the way down the coast. Um, So my final part was that I ended up then going up to Wisconsin uh, near the Great Lakes and that was to a big fly in there. They have, uh, it's called Oshkosh. Um, they have a convention there and there's 600,000 people go there every July. It's the biggest fly in in the world. Uh, 10,000 aircraft fly into it. Wow. And they all sleep under their, uh, the wings, you know, just bring their tents and whatever. It's like a big festival for it's planes. Cool. Uh, so I made a, a sort of a beeline for there uh, to finish my sort of American flight, if you like. Um, and the aircraft, Roxy, as she's called, it's <laughs> Golf Yankee Romeo Oscar X-Ray is, is, the, is the registration, uh, is now in the museum at Oshkosh. Wow. Uh, they were very keen because it's the first gyro to circumnavigate. They were very keen to, to put it on display. Yeah, I bet. And so I, uh, I, I lent it to the museum for a year. Uh, to put on display, so it was a it was a fitting uh, finale for for such a, uh, a long drawn out challenge. Mm. I mean, I'd set off way back twenty ten. It took nine years to get this thing done, uh, but 
it, it was a thing that I, I felt compelled to do for for all gyroplanes because <laughs> we are the underdog yeah, yeah, yeah. of aviation. And a lot of people, you'd land at some little airfield somewhere in, in England or wherever, uh, and the people would look at you and, and sort of wonder, well, you know, any thoughts of getting a proper Who's plane? this kid here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, surely that's just a toy helicopter, <laughs> you know? And and that sort of wrangled a bit, you know. It's a very capable aircraft. It'll, yeah. You know, it'll fly across Atlantic and take you around the world quite safely. Yeah. Um, and so that was part of the reason for doing the flight. And the other part, of course, uh, going back to the to the uh, the bile cancer, it was to send a message around the world. Uh, and I did do a lot of talks in different countries uh, to people um, that. It was a message to uh, cancer sufferers that are maybe newly diagnosed today that, uh, you know, I was in that dark place as well. Uh, And the message is not to give up hope because, you know, you never know within a decade you could be off flying around the world. And what a marvelous sort of uh, message of hope for people to, 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 uh, to take on board. Yeah. And what a legacy for you, you know? Yeah. My granda was the first man in the world to fly or circumnavigate in a gyro craft. <laughs> By the way, he's from Larn. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's pretty special. They're great accolades, aren't they? Yeah. Especially, <laughs> yeah. Especially from Larn. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You got to be proud of yourself. Well, yes, I'm... I'm pleased that I managed to, to do it in the end. Uh, as I say, it wasn't certain. Uh, that that in itself gave a bit of uh, encouragement. You know, if it had been, if it had been easy, mm. you know, it wouldn't have been half the, the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, the flying, you often say the flying is the easy part because the bureaucracy is the worst part. Mm. And people ask, oh, would you do it again? Well, I'd like to fly through some of the countries that were quite pleasant. Yeah. Some of the countries were dreadful. Yeah, I bet. You know, really difficult. Not not in terms of the people. The mm-hmm. people were lovely everywhere. Mm-hmm. But in terms of their bureaucracy and their paperwork, uh, just so difficult to do anything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, spontaneously. Yeah. Uh, which is, in this sort of flying, you have to be spontaneous. You have mm-hmm. to just... Oh, drop that! We'll do we'll do this instead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because of the weather, because of whatever mm-hmm. conditions are on on route. But again, your your resourcefulness kicks in there. Uh, talk to me about the golden five minutes. Oh, the, yes. Well, that's uh, when it, because I'm unsupported on on the uh, the flight. Uh, you land and. You, the re- reaction you get everywhere you land is, is pretty similar. It's, it's one of... Look at that wee yellow plane. Yeah. Is that a plane? <laughs> yeah. They, they sort of look at you a bit sort of in- incredulously and think, <laughs> what, what is this? And, you know, they're scratching their heads and, they, and they're curious, of course, and, and they come over and they, they ask him, where have you come from? And when they, especially if you're around the other side of the world, they go, what, you, you've come from Northern Ireland? Yeah. That, that little thing? <gasps> And you've flown over those oceans and, you know, it's quite amazing. Um, but within that first five minutes of landing, 
Uh, you've got a you've got your own agenda. <laughs> what you need, what they need, is a selfie. Yes, with, they need a story. Yes, yes. and they need that uh, you know uh, part. But what you need as the pilot is you need a some sort of a hanger to keep this thing in because it's quite fragile on the ground. Mm. You know, it's an open cockpit. Um, you need fuel. You need some sort of transport, and you need accommodation. Yeah, and so. As soon as you get down, you've got about five minutes while they're very super interested <laughs> yeah. to try and tease those things out. Otherwise, they all wander off and you're left, you're on your own. Yeah. And they've had their selfie and away they go and they're busy texting all their mates to yeah. say, look what I've seen. Yeah. Um, and But by and large, people are, you know, the world over, they have been very, very uh, helpful mm. and warm and friendly and... It may be that I got a lot of help because of the actual type of aircraft I was flying in. Mm. Uh, of course, when you turn up in a gyro, people look at you and think, that guy needs help. And, <laughs> and you know, you're given that help. Um, I think if I'd tried to fly around in a, just a conventional aircraft, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have got the same buzz and the same interest mm-hmm. in that. Uh, but of course, at the same time, probably would have been easier. Yeah. So, so there was that added challenge, I suppose, of, of flying one of these small aircraft um, to get there. But yes, the, the golden five minutes. So, like, what was the perfect routine for you? Because I, I too have a golden five minutes. The the fate of whether or not a podcast interview goes well for me is that five minutes. You have five minutes to make someone feel relaxed. You have five minutes to make people feel like they can trust you. Yes. You have five minutes to kind of make this studio something of a home for them where yeah. they feel comfortable sharing. Yeah. So I'm interested in that golden five minutes. What sort of things did you find really worked? Like, because it's, it's very difficult to connect with people Yes. In that short space of time. But in some cases, it's essential, particularly for you. <laughs> yes. Well, I was lucky in the, in so much as I had a, a third person. Now, the third person was the Jaro. <laughs> uh, and so we had a common, uh, me and, and whoever I was speaking to had a common thing to talk about, which was the Jaro. Mm. And so, uh, and it was the Jaro that came, got them running over in the first place. Sure. And so... When they're asking their questions about how high you fly and how fast you fly and all these normal things, mm-hmm. well, you were then steering the conversation to around, well, you know, it, it would need to be in a hangar usually in the night time. <laughs> and I see you around here, you, well, maybe they don't have a hangar. Yeah. But, of course, a gyro is very, uh, once the, the rotor is stopped, uh, it's very narrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just like a big go-kart mm-hmm. on the ground. Uh, and it can be pushed into a garage or sure. a, a workshop or, uh, you know, a few places we're in with the snow plows because they don't need those in the yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah. And you could just sort of squeeze it into places like that. And uh, sometimes you had resistance saying, oh, no, it's not possible. It's not possible. Mm. And you would just keep badgering away and say, oh, but what about over there and what about there? And, and what, it's the same idea where you're building trust with that person and you're getting them to uh, feel engaged mm. and feel belonging to the project and to the flight uh, and such that they then want to help mm-hmm. with it. You know, not necessarily help you, but you're helping the, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, 
that's the way, very similar, I suppose, is that gaining trust is, is the way that you, you make people comfortable. Mm. Um, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, <laughs> you know. Sometimes the back, you always had this sort of, the backstop was that you, uh, well, you just ha- had a very light cover that you could cover the aircraft with, uh, and it would just then have to sit out on the apron in the wind and mm-hmm. the rain and, you know, and some parts of Russia, it, it had to do that. Yeah. Uh, where they, they wouldn't allow it to go in yeah. anywhere. But What did you eat? Um, well, I mean, we were, uh, you landed, you're only flying maybe four or five hours a day. Uh, so by and large, you might take a few snacks with you there, uh, a few drinks or bottles and whatever, but you, at, at nighttime, then you were off to some, some accommodation, whatever it was, uh, in what was the most glamorous accommodation and meal and what was the absolute humblest? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I was in some quite ropey accommodation, I suppose, in places, uh, you know, in small hostels and shared rooms. And uh, f- there was one in in a place called Kota Kanabalu in, in Borneo, uh, <laughs> which was, I'd, I'd, I don't know if it was the right thing, but I'd said to the, uh, the guys who were helping me there, uh, Eddie had organized these couple of guys and they were students and they turned up to uh, give me a hand. And uh, so I, on the way in, in the taxi or whatever, into the town, and I think one of them had a car. We, we got a lift into town anyway. And they're asked, what sort of accommodation do you want? And I says, oh, just uh, something cheap and cheerful, you know, <laughs> and, uh, which is normally what I would get. You know, yeah. I wouldn't be going in for four star hotels. Yeah. There's just no, it's just unnecessary and expensive. And um, so I think I maybe just pitched it a little bit too too low <laughs> because they then took it on themselves. A race to the bottom. <laughs> to get me the cheapest place they could find. And it was something like, I don't know, $5 or something. Sure. You know. Um, but I went into the room and yes, there was a bed in it. And yes, you could just about close the door. And it, I, I then looked over towards the window and you could see that the window was cut in half, mm. that there's a partition. The normal size of room had just had a partition put in the middle <laughs> across the window. Amazing. And uh, so you had half a room, literally nice. half a room, uh, which was quite, uh, but it was fine. I mean, for, mm. for just overnight. Yeah. Um, I suppose the other end of the extreme was, uh, well, in fact, James at one point, rather foolishly in Russia said uh, similar conversation uh, had said oh take us to the best uh, place you've got (laughs) and of course there are pockets of Russia that are quite uh, fabulous you know Uh, and so we ended up in these double suites or we well we had one each um, in this hotel in, uh, in Magadan in the far east of Russia and I don't know if they were trying to show this is, look what we've got and this is, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, mm-hmm. this is very advanced and everything else. But these, you'd set off to the bathroom from the bed in the huge room and it would take you about 20 or 30 steps to get across. <laughs> you know, and if you hadn't turned the light on, yeah, 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 you yeah, might yeah. be away in the, in the cupboard. <laughs> you know, you nearly needed your GPS to get sure. across to where the bathroom was. 
uh, and that was the other end of the extreme, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, we had some great, uh, well, great experiences the world mm-hmm. over. Thirty-two countries I, I flew through. It's amazing. In, in total, uh, and in all climates, um, I think the most wearing climate was in the deserts. I'm not really. Lauren doesn't do deserts really, and you know doesn't doesn't prepare you for mm-hmm. deserts. Um, and uh, it, it, yes, over just even over the Arizona desert, I flew along the the Mexican border from mm. San Diego across into Texas, and that was just hot. Uh, I, I was in a motel. Uh, it was about half eleven at night, and it was still ninety five degrees uh, in the dark. You know, in the, in the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the lady in the desk, and I went in. Uh, she says. Oh, it can be 120 in the daytime. Mental. It's just, you know, you just can't. That's mental. Like, can't be prepared for that. That's so wild. <laughs> Was there a moment that you felt really, like, properly scared? Um, yes. Uh, well, scared wouldn't be the right word. I was, I was certain apprehensive in times with weather. Um, the time I landed in the lake, I was, it was too quick to be anything. Um, that there was no emotion really with that. But um, but yes, being uncertain, there was a few. There was a very lonely time in uh, in Myanmar. Myanmar at the time was under military rule, um, and I'd left Bangladesh flying for uh, Yangon in in Myanmar, the old Rangoon as it was once called. Uh, in Burma, and uh, I was about an hour away from from Yangon, uh, and I realised I didn't have the onward frequency on the radio. Uh, I hadn't got it written down, mm. and uh, well, without a frequency, you can't call the tower, sure, and you can't come and approach these international airports. Um, you know, there's, you're a, a UFO at that yeah, point, exactly, you know, and. Um, so I'm flying along and I suddenly feel very lonely. You know, I'm in the middle of this military, militarized country. Mm. Uh, I haven't got any way of talking to anybody because I don't know which frequency they're mm-hmm. going to be on. Um, and so I thought, and, and I'm flying towards them. And, it, you know, every five minutes I'm getting closer. And sure, closer. yeah. And so I'm thinking, what to do? And, well, in aviation, you have a, uh, a distress uh, frequency, uh, Distress and diversion frequency uh, on one two one point five, and uh, so really, all all I could do was to call up all stations mm. on one two one point five, and that's basically putting a broadcast out to everyone. Anybody listening? Yeah, can you please yeah. come back to me? Yeah. Now most airliners uh, should be monitoring one two one point five. On one of their, they usually have two radios, mm-hmm. and they normally monitor that just as a safety thing for other aircraft. Sure, because if you have to put out a mayday, it may be the only call you ever do, and you put it out on that frequency. Um, so I put out this call and uh, listened. Nothing, mm. nothing, and I'm flying along, getting closer, and I'm thinking. <laughs> um, so anyway, about. A couple of minutes later, I, I try again, I call it out again. And as luck would have, an American Airlines oh, uh, aircraft from above me 
called back down and said, uh, Golf Yankee Romeo Oscar X-Ray, uh, Yangon Control is trying to reach you on frequency and oh, told me the number. Nice. And I wrote it down and never so relieved to get back in contact. Uh, and so that was a, that was one that it wasn't a physical emergency. Sure. But it certainly could have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they started... Uh, Sending the jets out. Sending the jets out for me, you know. Uh, so there's a few motion moments there where you're out on the edge. Mm-hmm. You're really at the edge of your envelope. Uh, and you have to have that inner confidence to say, you know, I'm still okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, and that, that was the coping strategy mm-hmm. always of that. And you always had to have a, a plan B. Uh, you know, if you're approaching the mountains and you're looking at the weather and you're going up a valley, well, what's the escape route? Mm-hmm. You know, can you turn around and go back down or can you go back down this one on the left or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always about keeping within, keeping safe, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's the same in, in lots of uh, ways of life. I mean, you don't go down a back alley in, <laughs> in the dark without thinking, can I get back to the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. streetlights again some way? You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Did you ever find it difficult? I know your flying was broke up into several years because of the uh, diplomacy issues, shall mm. we say? Um, but that after that initial was that initial stint your longest stint before Russia? Um, yes, the the longest flying, yeah, continual flying. Yeah. I suppose was uh, was it was difficult? Year. Was it difficult to come back to the ground? You know, come back to normal life or you know, spend um, your days waking up in a bed as opposed, you know, <laughs> and not getting on the, yeah. the gyro, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was a relief after, because each year would be the, the sort of flying season, if you like, uh, because of the Bering Sea and, and the Atlantic, those things, you don't fly in the winter. Mm-hmm. And so you were, although it took nine years, it was only ever in the summer times of those nine years, or mm-hmm. the sort of spring and autumn, uh, that you could be doing the flying. Uh so yes, there was a sort of a, an off season, if you like, um, but you had always right through that whole time. You had the in the back of your mind, you still had it to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still there to be done, uh, and that would never go away mm-hmm. until it was done. And then it's you can rest easy yeah. after that. Yeah, uh, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> I um, I always say at this point in the interview that. I like to land the plane, but in this context, it sounds like a bad pun. Uh, I promise you it's not. Yeah. Uh, we always land the plane of the, you know, each episode with a couple of stock questions. Yes. Uh, these are questions we ask everybody and I enjoy it. I, I like to kind of see how different people respond to the same question. And I, I oh, yeah. personally find that really interesting. Yeah. Uh, the first one, maybe you know what's coming is, uh, you know, what, what would you describe as the most successful moment of your life? Most successful? Mm. Um, hmm. Well, there's been a few, I guess. Uh, I suppose overcoming the uh, the bile cancer at the time, uh, although it was a, a drawn-out success, it wasn't something that was, it wasn't a definite mm. there was moment, uh, but it was definitely... Uh, you know, in terms of looking back, I think that was a, a moment because it, there was 15 years there since uh, since that happened, or 16 years now, 
where I might easily not have been. And so, uh, yeah, I think that was probably one of the the, the biggest. Uh, plus all the, you know, the the birth of your children and blah, blah, blah. blah of course. The, you know, all the those things as well, of mm-hmm. course. But, uh, but yeah, that was, that was it, probably. Cool. Twin brother of that one. Um, most challenging moment? Probably the same thing. Yeah. It's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? It is. I think it says a lot about your mindset. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, because it was, yeah, it was so extreme. Um, everything else would be not at the same level of intensity. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What does having an experience like that do to you as a man? Because you have experienced something on such an intensity. You know, you described mm-hmm. in our coffee, you know, a few days ago before this, you described, mm-hmm. I thought this was crazy, you described cancer as a a new country that you've never been to. Yes. Not a lot of people I know would say that. Uh you know, you have had this experience of such intensity and challenge. You know, how does that alter a life? Uh, yeah, it it, it 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 was a bit of a an adventure, if you like, in in a quite an unusual way. Not in a flippant way, but mentally, I took it on as a, as an adventure, uh, a challenge that you were exploring a place that you don't go to normally, uh, either physically or mentally. Well, then let me ask you this. In that exploration, what did you learn about yourself? Um, Well, I suppose that that I was quite resilient in adversity. Uh, You you never know these things until they happen. Mm. Uh, Once... But yes, and I, it could have easily come out in a different way. But yeah, so it was quietly resi- resilient is, is probably how I reacted to it. Um, though I didn't expect, you know, you, you can't really predict how you're going to react. Mm. Uh, but I took that on as, um, I, th- I suppose it was a case of you could have sh- got angry and shouted up and down and but it's not going to help. Mm-hmm. You know, you might as well just quietly get on and focus with the thing and, and do what is necessary to, to get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the thing that helped you the most to get through it? Um, well, young family, uh, lots of things to live for. Mm-hmm. Um, being young as well. I mean, it wasn't, you know, there's a lot of life still to live. Um I think those are the the main drivers, mm-hmm. uh, and a, a bit of there was a bit of anger of of saying you know why me and, and why so young and why 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 mm-hmm. um, so a, a bit of a you know well that that just gives you more energy to fight back mm-hmm. really. And it, and it did take that, I think, that mental drive as well to to endure 
what was quite a difficult uh, time during the, the chemo, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because it's such a long drawn out process as well, and it wears you down, and mm-hmm. you know, you have to keep focus for so long. Yeah. Uh, you know, an ultra marathon would be a drop in the ocean <laughs> compared to doing some of these things. You yeah, know? If it was an Olympic sport, it would be quite a quite an extreme yeah. version. Mm-hmm. This question feels a wee bit out of place just because of the tone, but I, I, I still want to ask it because we ask everybody. Uh, if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for a coffee, uh, dead or alive, who would you take and where would you take them? Hmm. Well, uh, I thought about this and uh, there was a family, uh, this is a little story, but there was a family from uh, Ballynure, which is just up the road from Larne. Um, and they, uh, in the night in the 1700s, they uh, emigrated from Ballynure uh, to America. Okay, wow! To the New World, <laughs> up sticks and away you go. Now, the uh, it was either the the son or the grandson of this guy in uh, Ballynure. Um, became, uh, went by the name of Sam Houston, and he became a very famous general cool. in America. Uh, so famous, in fact, he won a lot of battles and things, and so famous that they named the city of Houston in Texas after Sam Houston. Wow. And his relatives came from Ballinure. <laughs> and there's a great story that comes uh, from Ballinure where they very proudly say that... Uh, the, the first words that were spoken on the surface of another uh, uh, celestial body uh, was the family name of a family from Ballynure. Wow. Because, of course, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon 50 years ago this year, mm-hmm. um, the first word they said was uh, Houston. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out where you were going with that. I was like, wait, I'm lost. <laughs> yeah, so there's a Houston Tranquility Base here. The nice. Eagle has landed. Very nice. And that was such a great little story yeah. from, from Ballyneur. So I'd love to to chat to that, you know, the, the man, Houston, who mm. emigrated with his family. Uh, and and it, it, because it would be... Uh, a similar sort of pioneering venture, mm-hmm. you know, they're off to the new lands and, you know, what is going to happen to them? Amazing in those days that people just up sticks and went like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, much, you know, okay, there was different reasons for going and things, but such a, an undertaking, oh, life changing. Yeah. Uh, now, where I would take them for a coffee. <laughs> uh, hmm. Prom Cafe in Larne. Oh, Larne. Let's do it. <laughs> yes. Shout out to the Prom Cafe in Larne. Brilliant. Um, the second last question is usually the last one, but I, I do have a, a slightly different end to this than I usually do. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the the next question, or the question we usually end with, is if you could turn you know this recording studio into a time machine and you could go back to an 18-year-old version of Norman, mm-hmm. you had a couple of minutes of his time, what would you say to him? 
Hmm. Well, I suppose at 18, I wasn't quite sure what what I was going to be ending up doing. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought perhaps, uh, yes, it would be something adventurous in some way, uh, not necessarily behind a desk sort of thing. Uh, uh, maybe something a bit unusual. That's as far as it went. But never would I have expected the history to have mm. unfolded as it has done. Um, just amazing journey, life journey, really, to, to, to go to witness. Because I'm a passenger as much as anybody else in sure. that, you know. Um, but, yeah, just to, um, I suppose it would be the same. I would give advice to any 18-year-old is to follow the, your dreams and go for, you know, might be might might look to be a bit unusual, a bit wacky, a bit uh, you know not mainstream, but uh, you know what? We're all individuals, and we're all you know uh, we're all capable uh, if we trust in ourselves and and have confidence, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in, in our abilities, and not to be belittled or 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 set back by what other people are saying, Mm -hmm. uh, to have strength in your own belief, um, I think is, is, is a good, good advice. I think, Mm -hmm. uh, to be confident and independent, um, it's good working in in groups and you can achieve a lot, uh, you know, in, in groups, uh, as well. Uh, um, I am probably a team player more than an individual, uh, and hence the idea that, you know, even though I was flying this flight solo a lot of the time, it was that notion that there was a thousand people yeah, in yeah, the yeah. team. Yeah. It was a virtual team. Yeah. Uh, but it was still mentally there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to be a prima donna or trying to be a, you know, a single person out there. Mm-hmm. Look at me, aren't I great? Yeah. It, it, nothing like that. It was, you know, we are going to get this thing done for us mm-hmm. as a collective as it were so cool um we don't have to do this uh, we can cut this uh, if this is uh, maybe a bit weird um, but i thought this would be a, a pretty cool way to end and uh, it would be an interesting place to end so it's kind of a bit of a not a thought experiment but i suppose it is um kind of had this picture of you on the gyro flying out and for some reason, who knows why, you could make up a scenario better than me. Uh, you just knew that you weren't going to make it, right? I don't know if the fuel was out or I don't know if for some reason there was a volcano opened up underneath you. Who knows, okay? And you had just a couple of miles left. And that team, that invisible team that you were talking about, you had a wee microphone or you had a recorder and you were able just to send them kind of one final message back home. What would you say? What would you say to them? To the people cheering you on, the friends, the family? Well, um, get the helicopter right to come and rescue you. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't feel that any situation was beyond hope even Mm -hmm. in that you know i'm running out of fuel or whatever Mm -hmm. well i'm looking for 
uh, is there a cargo ship yeah. somewhere to set down? What is the, you know, even if I have to ditch in the sea, it's back to this idea of uh, look my watch and, and yeah. press the, the beacon and say, right, when's the helicopter coming? Uh, and so it would be very practical, the message <laughs> as in, uh, this is what's happening. Uh, this is where I am. Uh, you know, who's going to come and get me? Nice. Uh, I think I, I wouldn't be fatalistic about it mm. at all. Uh, it would be, you know, that's the next thing. It's just a different chapter. Yeah. It's not the end. I wouldn't think there would be a situation until it happened. You, you wouldn't, I wouldn't give up hope. Incredible. Yeah. Norman, thank you very, very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Matt. Wow. Really, really amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you obviously, you, you start a podcast like this and you want to share stories of incredible things that people have done from Northern Ireland. You know, there's obviously the the usual suspects, many of whom we've interviewed. But then there's just stories like this that just seem to come up out of nowhere. And it really, really makes you see that this part of the world is just incredible. And the, the people in it are incredible. And it was a real honor to come across this story and uh, even more exciting to, to share it with you guys. So I really hope you enjoyed it. I know I'm, I can pretty much guarantee that you did. <laughs> uh, the fact that you've, you've listened to it this far is just, that's proof of that. Norman, thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing uh, so openly and so honestly and in such an engaging way. I also just want to kind of circle back to the start of the episode. You know, you know, someone someone emailed in and told us about Norman. That's how we found out. It's very hard to, you know, have your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on. So we absolutely rely on you guys, the people who listen, the people who like the show, uh, to inform us of incredible stories just like Norman's. So I always say this, well, not always. I usually say this at the end of every episode. The inbox is wide open. The email inbox is there. Please do talk to us. If you've never reached out and chatted before, it's matthew at bestofbelfast.org. I'm so keen to hear from and connect with the people that listen to the show. Whether you have a great guest recommendation or not, or you've been listening for a while and you just want to make that bit of contact and say, look, here's a wee bit about me. This is why I listen. This is where I'm from. You know, that stuff right there. That's what the podcast is all about. And uh, we had a really, really fun live podcast a couple of weeks ago with the priests. Thank you very much again to everyone who was a part of that. I'll be publishing that out in a couple of weeks here. (laughs) That in itself was a crazy story. But if it is your first time listening, or you've only kind of dipped your toe in the water with Best of Belfast, we have done over 70 conversations just like this one. You can go back, leaf through the archive at bestofbelfast.org or your favorite podcast app. And yeah, we're on a journey to share... 100 hour-long conversations uh, that's made possible by listeners just like you who support us financially for as little as one pound a month that allows you to be a part of our producers club which is basically an inner circle where we invite people to live podcasts we give them kind of a peek behind the scenes we share you know best belfast gift boxes every few months and a whole bunch more There's also the email newsletter, which will automatically send you a photo of each guest every single week whenever it goes out, along with contact information, their favorite quotes, their favorite books. Uh, (laughs) Norman's favorite quote is hilarious. I'll let you you see that for yourself in your email inbox or uh, by heading to bestofbelfast.org. Guys, that is it. Thank you very, very much for listening. Really can't wait for the next couple of weeks. We have an exciting uh, CEO series coming up soon. 
where we sit down with six industry disruptors. I mean, people just at the absolute top of their game. And uh, you've got the Priest's Life podcast to look forward to and some absolute hidden gems and wild cards along the way. So, yeah, that's it for me for now. My name is Matthew Thompson. This is the best of Belfast. And until next Monday morning, all the very best. Cheers. <laughs>